0: We're looking at the text in Romans chapter 5 concerning the gift of righteousness, contrasting the first Adam, the sinner, with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the principle of representation. What we see in this text is same principle but different outcomes. In our present study we have been analyzing the principle of what we have called federal headship. The truth that the first man, Adam, because he was the first, he uh, represents all of the race. And what he did affected all of his posterity. Likewise, Jesus coming in as the last Adam represents his posterity, his family, by his actions as well. Representation that affects a vast number of others should not be that difficult a concept because we have this in our society everywhere. Michigan is certain, certainly a union state, by which I mean the United Auto Workers, the UAW, represents all those employees of the big three, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler. Union contracts usually last about three years. But at the end of that third year, they begin to negotiate for a new contract. And while the three major auto manufacturers bargain separately with the UAW, the process is the same. Duly elected union officials sit down with management representatives to work out agreements on wages or hospitalization or pension or what have you. Not all of the 50,000 plus UAW employees cram into some kind of stadium big enough to accommodate them all in order to bargain directly with the auto manufacturers on the new contract. No, they don't do that. The representatives talk. They argue. They bargain. They write it down on paper. They go over the wording in detail. And while the UAW may have the final vote of approval, those thousands of workers, even if they disagree, even if they vote no, they have to wait while their representatives go back to the bargaining table to hammer out a compromise. Representatives to the thousands. A few representatives to thousands. And what those representatives do counts in the contract. In the end, in the end, the UAW must and does accept the deal that their representative heads have acquired. No matter how many revisions it might take to get to the agreement, they don't sit there, all 50,000 plus, and argue with the management. Now, that's just one example, but this kind of representation is everywhere in our society. Think of the family. God assigns headship to dad. We would say, dads, the buck stops here. But even in rebellious homes in which a wife might assume headship, family decisions are affected by the representative head. What about the church? In the church we have duly appointed elders. Yes, they have to meet the requirements of God. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. But that being ascertained, the church at large is cautioned, Obey your leaders and submit to those who have authority over you. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Think about retail stores. What about them? Well, from the mom and pop party store that's on the corner to the large mega malls like Walmart and Kmart and Myers that take up acres of space, doesn't matter, they all have some person or persons at the head who call the shots for the entire store. That's called representation. Here's the rub. There are good representative heads who make good and wise decisions. There are bad representatives who make wicked and ignorant decisions. Solyndra's failure in the solar industry, which has been all over the news, was due in large part to poor management. Since the solar panel company was funded by U.S. taxpayer money, we lost over 500 million dollars and it came out of your pocket and mine. And on top of that, the bankruptcy, when the government management came in, they didn't do any better because they approved the destruction, believe this or not, of all the solar panels that that were already stockpiled instead of selling them off to try to regain some of the loss. They just sent them to the dump. Management making poor decisions. Now this all relates to our text when discussing spiritual headship. Adam of Eden failed in his allegiance to God, his Creator Lord. He opted to believe Satan's lie. And in so doing, he bowed before Satan as his head instead of before God. And the consequences of Adam's failure affected all of those that he represented. And we have it in our text, verse 17. By the trespass of one man, just one man. Think about this. Death reigned through that one man And you can see that in verse 14. Again, look at verse 18. The result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. How can that be? Because Adam, being the first man, represents all men and his actions adversely affected his entire posterity. Unlike the UAW contract, you and I do not get to vote, approval or disapproval on Adam's actions. There's no going back to the bargaining table. There's no new first man. There's no new Eve. There's no new pristine, perfect Eden. No sinless environment. None of that you can go back to. What we have is consequence. And we have to live with the consequences. More accurately, we die because of the consequences. We are condemned by God in the consequences. Adam's sinful nature comes down upon all men. But consider now the representative of Jesus Christ. There are consequences to his actions too. How he behaved in reference to God the Father affects the people that he represents as equally as did Adam and Eve. The principle's the same, but my, what a difference in the outcome. Look at verse 17, Romans 5. Adam's one trespass initiated the reign of death that characterizes all humanity everywhere. And likewise, for those who receive God's gift of grace, the gift of righteousness, The reign of life is initiated and ongoing for all those that are in Christ. Again, verse 18. Adam's one trespass, what? Equaled condemnation. Jesus' one act of righteousness equals justification and life for all whom He represents. Again, one more verse. Verse 19. Adam's one act of disobedience resulted in people becoming sinners. Jesus obedience many will be made righteous. Now all of this is due to the representative head scenarios. Same principle, different outcomes. We stand or fall before God based on the actions of our representative head. If all of you have if all you have going for you, is Adam the sinner, then you are in deep trouble with God. You must have Jesus, the last Adam, as your representative to counteract and reverse and restore and reconcile you to God. You might say, well, I think I'm okay. I I, I don't think it's as bad as you're portraying things. Well, let me just say as kindly as I can, actually, words fail me to portray things as bad as they are. Things are not as good as they can be. They're they're worse than I can say. They are worse than sinful Adam's representation. And that's what we're looking at this morning. What makes it worse? Personal sin and personal judgment on top of the sin by association with Adam. Now we've been looking hard at this whole thing that we're sinners by association with the first Adam. But now Paul enters into another discussion and he starts to talk about our personal sin on top of our association with Adam. You see, what Adam's representation did for you is to give you a sin nature, a propensity towards sin, which means that apart from God's grace and a changed heart, all you can do is sin. All the time, in thought, in word, Indeed, because as Paul describes unbelievers, there is no fear of God before their eyes. People think, well, I can do some good things, but when we start defining good by God's standard, it's not there. Good by God's standard is that we do things, not only that are good, but we do things for God's glory. And therein is where we fail. There is no fear of God before their eyes, writes Paul, Romans 3, verse 18. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Shaking your boots? Well, there's that aspect, I'm, I'm sure of that. But it has to do with a reverence for Him and a love for Him that the unbeliever does not have. Here's how wise man Solomon answers the question. He says, to fear the Lord is, here's definition now. To fear the Lord is is to hate evil. Then he goes on, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 8 verse 13. He's defining what it means to fear the Lord. If you're a person that fears the Lord, you're going to hate all of those things that are opposed to what God is in terms of His holiness and righteousness and purity. He goes on. He's got more verses. Through love and faithfulness sin is atoned for through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Proverbs sixteen sixteen. So to fear the Lord means that we're going to go on a path where we avoid evil. We don't run with it. And in it, we avoid it. Why? Because we have a reverence for God and His holiness. And we want to be pleasing to Him. And then one more verse. Proverbs 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart... Envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. So let me ask this question. Do you hate evil? Do you avoid evil? Do you refrain from envying sinners? Boy, there's a big one. How many times do we envy sinners? What they have, what they're doing, their popularity, whatever. Whatever. Well, if these things aren't true, then you're having a problem with the fear of God in your heart. you got kind of maybe one foot in the world and one one foot trying to live for the Lord. It's an impossibility. Satan has convinced you that temporal troubles are more to be feared than, let's say, eternal realities. Jesus himself addressed this question when he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. Wow, strong words, right? And again, it's how he's do- Christ is helping us to define what we're to really fear. Don't fear men because they can hurt you physically. Fear God. Who has your soul's destiny in His hands? Solomon writes it this way: "Fear of men, fear of man, excuse me, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe." Proverbs twenty-nine, verse twenty-five. I'm ashamed to say it, and I've been I've been here as well. Uh, even God's people are motivated by their fear of men sometimes, over their fear of God. You ever, you ever get it into that point? I mean, you're a child of God, and you, you love Christ, but circumstances come and, and, you, and they make you fearful. Abraham did this with Sarah, his wife, before King Abimelech. Let me read it for you. I said to myself, there, <laughs> there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Genesis 20 verse 11. So he uh, made this elaborate scheme with Sarah. and says, tell you what Sarah, let's have a deal here. You know, the, These people don't know the Lord and they're going to kill me to get you because you are a beauty. <laughs> and what am I? So you just say to these Philistines, that you're my sister." and that, that, That opened a whole can of worms. What happened here? He was afraid of men. He wasn't trusting God to protect his wife and his relationship with her. He was trusting his own little scheme. It didn't work. Aaron's explanation to Moses for fashioning a golden calf from the jewelry of the people was this. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil, Exodus 32, 22. What was he saying to Moses, his brother? He said, well, the only reason I did this is because, you know, these people are evil. You weren't around. You're up there on the mountain. Nobody can find you. You know, they're getting whipping into a frenzy down here. They're saying we need to worship something. Who, this Moses guy, where, where is he? What's he doing? We don't know. You make for us a God that we can worship. He's trying to say to Moses, you know, that, 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 that's why I did it. Brother, that's why I did it. These people are prone to evil. I was fearful for my own life. Then we read in this scripture, these words in 1 Kings 19, verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And this is the incident where he's running from Ahab and Jezebel over whose idolatrous prophets he had just had a great victory. And Satan does this to us sometimes when we have great spiritual victories, then he'll bring us in and he'll wrap us with something that is very carnal and very fleshly and very uh, susceptible to our weakness. He had just had this wonderful victory over 400 false prophets. And yet he heard that Jezebel had taken a vow to kill him. And he said, whoa, man, i got to get out of here. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now all of this fear of men and what they might do to us pales in comparison to our position before God and what He will do to us as lawbreakers. There is condemnation on all humanity because of Adam's representation. But notice verse 20. The law of Moses was added so that the trespass might, get the next word, increase. The trespass would increase. We've been learning that men are guilty as sinners before God through Adam's representation. Paul says, in Adam I'll die. But now, now Paul tells us One of the purposes for God giving the law, think about the Ten Commandments here, was so the trespass might increase. What does that mean? Well, far from the law being given so that men could obey it and be saved, God gave the law so that men could see their own personal trespass against God and their great need for a Savior. When the wealthy young lawyer approached Jesus, the scripture says, Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. When he said that, he was telling on himself. Well, what was he telling on himself? He was saying, Lord, just tell me what I need to do to get eternal life and I will do it. He thought he could do it. He saw his problem as simply being one of ignorance. I don't know what I am to do, but if you just tell me what to do, I'm sure I can do it. How did Jesus answer this young man? Well, he did not argue with him. But he used the law, listing a number of the Ten Commandments. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Matthew 19, verse 20. And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew 19, verse 21 and 22. What just happened here? Commandment number 10 was highlighted by Jesus in very practical terms. Thou shalt not And it was the pin that burst this young man's balloon of self-righteous confidence. Just tell me what I need to do. I know I can do it. And Jesus said, okay, you're pretty wealthy. Here's what we need to do. We need to sell all you have, distribute your wealth to the poor, and then come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Whoa, whoa, he he wasn't looking to do that. Now that's really getting personal here. What happened, brethren, is that the law did what God intended it to do. It brought conviction of sin. This young man was feeling pretty good about himself until the law of God became more than an academic exercise to approve what he thought was his own righteousness. Jesus challenged his thinking using the law for its intended purpose, to show this young man that he was a trespasser of God's requirements. That's the law's purpose. That's why God gave it. Not to save you. Not to say, obey the Ten Commandments and you can earn eternal life. But rather to say to you and to say to me, try as you will, you can never obey the law. You do not have the will, you do not have the heart, you do not have the ability to obey. All you can do is break the law, and that shows you that you are self-condemned, not self-saved. And that's why the law was given. Thus it increases trespass, you see. Paul had the same identical experience, and he tells us about that in Romans chapter 7. Listen to this statement in verse 9. Paul's talking about himself. He says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. What is he saying? He meant that so long as his mind did not reflect on God's perfect standard, he did not see himself in any kind of danger. He was pleased (laughs) with his own righteousness. We have texts in in the scriptures where Paul uh, boasts about his life as a Pharisee and about his righteousness. He was pleased with his righteousness. He was pleased with his position as a religious man, as one who had earned approval from God. He was alive. He was happy. He was alive and confident of his eternal destiny, which she thought was heaven. Heaven is in the bag. But the bag developed a gaping hole when to his consciousness God applied. Again, commandment number 10. When the commandment came, and by that he means when the consciousness of it hit home. <laughs> when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. When the commandment came, I figured out I was a sinner and now I'm not happy and now I'm not alive and now I'm not heading for heaven. Sin came alive and I died. Now he had always been dead in sin, trespasses and sins, it's his consciousness that, that's coming alive. He's becoming alert to the real condition of his heart. And brethren, this is the purpose of the law. It wasn't given to save you, it wasn't to given to show you that you need a uh, it was given rather to show you that you need a savior outside of yourself, outside of your own abilities. It was given not to show you how good you can become, but to show you how bad you are. It was given to show that in addition to Adam's one trespass of one command of God, the sin you and I practice involves many trespasses of multiple righteous commands. So we are doubly guilty before God and we even outsin Adam. There was a young man in the news here the last week who, vacationing with his buddies in one of the seashore resorts, decided that he would see how deep a hole he could dig in the sand. Sounds like one of these college things, doesn't it? Well, when he got to 17 feet, (laughs) that's pretty good, he soon realized that he had reached the limit of his ability. The hole caved in on him and buried him alive. And he was at the mercy of his friends to dig him out as fast as they could before he suffocated. Well, he survived. But his folly would have killed him had someone from the outside and independent of him had not stepped in to rescue him. The law of God allows us to dig a hole for ourselves through self-righteousness. But in the end, it buries us in our own impotence to obey God's standard perfectly. It'll bury you, but it will not rescue you. You and I need someone independent of us to step in, step down, stoop down to our inability and pull us from the dirt to the breath of spiritual life. And that's the work of Christ, the last Adam. And that's the second point in our bulletin outline, Jesus and His gift of righteousness. We want to look firstly here at the last Adam's sinless life. You know, by the time of Jesus' birth, the law of God had been codified and taught in Israel for centuries. It was part of the curriculum of every Jewish boy who attended the synagogue school. So even at age 12, at age 12, When his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover feast, Jesus' preferred place was sitting among, reading scripture, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke 2, verse 46. Whereas other young boys his age were involved with games and other festivities... Jesus was absorbed with learning about the Word of God and how that was to govern his life. And we say, well that doesn't sound normal to me. Why wasn't he out playing and having fun with the other kids? What you and I define as normal, as fun with the other kids, Jesus saw as the potential for trouble. We even say it in our day. Well, you know, (laughs) boys will be boys. And we say that to excuse our children when they sin against one another or when they sin against God. But Jesus was living the life of Adam as God had originally intended. And wonder of wonders, he did it in a less than perfect, sinful environment. The environment of his day was sinful, it was corrupt. But he was not corrupted and he was not sinful. Peter words it this way. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2 verse 22. The apostle John came to the same conclusion. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. 1 John 3 verse 5. Think again of that college kid buried in the sand pit of his own digging what good would have come of it if his friends were in the pit with him when it collapsed (coughs) Jesus referring to the hypocritical and false religious teachers of his day said this leave them he told his disciples leave them they are blind guides If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Matthew 15, verse 14. Brethren, we sinners need someone distinct from us, someone not a sinner, to extract us from the pit of sin that we have dug for ourselves. And that's how needy we are, and that's how desperate our plight is. We must have a savior like that described by the writer of Hebrews when he says such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted in the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, He sacrificed for their sins once for all when He offered Himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7, 26 or 28. David put it this way. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise on my, to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, Who does not look to the proud and to those who turn aside to false gods? Psalm 40, first four verses. Now, note here that what David's hope is not in other sinful men. He talks about the proud, those who have idolatrous views of God. No, he needs the all powerful and sovereign Lord to lift him out of the slimy pit that engulfs him and from the mud of sin that has made him dirty. That's all he needs. He needs the one of whom Moses sang just days before his death. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. Young people, slimeball friends will not help you find peace with God. Help is not to be found in denying the truth, nor in admitting it, but then ignoring the consequences of sin. People reap what they sow. Paul put it this way, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. He's saying sinners will do this for you. Sinners pull sinners down with them. And only God and His grace can set your feet on the solid rock that does not move. You need someone who's not a sinner to come along and grab a hold of you and grant you His strength and grace. Jesus is that sinless Savior who alone saves. That brings up then was Jesus really tempted to sin and did he gain real righteousness? Some have suggested that because Jesus could not sin and did not sin that he knows little about the problems that we face as sinners. This philosophy amazes me but It is part of the world's defective and sinful analysis which goes something like this. You have to be one to know one. When I was a kid, we used to have this slogan, it takes one to know one, which we used. We used that as a retort to the kids who would tease us. Someone would say, oh, you're so stupid. You can't even add two plus two. And we would retort, takes one to know one. Well, adult educators have developed a more sophisticated philosophy, but it is still based on this childish assumption. It takes one to know one. The new twist is you have to be one to know one. So when these educators go looking for a role model, say, to teach young people to abstain from sexual conduct because of the possibility of an unforeseen pregnancy, or to abstain from alcohol abuse so that they look for a person who has never succumbed to these things, is that what they look for? No. They look for the unwed single mother and make her the spokeswoman for her classmates. They look for the kid who smashed his dad's car while on a a drunken bench and barely escaped his life with his life. And the assumption is that help for these sins lies with others who have committed the same sins and now live with regrets. That's our educator's philosophy. Well, God knows that all of the regret in the world will not keep others from doing the same sinful things. Because young people have this ability to think of themselves as the exception to the rule. Well, yeah, he did that with his dad's car, but not me. I never did that. Yeah, she got pregnant with her boyfriend, but not me. What God provides in his son is the one of whom Hebrews 4 verse 15 states, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who, now listen, has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15. Ah, that's what I need. Not someone in the pit with me, buried alive and dying by the minute, be one to no one. Rather, I need one who had the good common sense to abstain from digging a death hole and who could dig me out when the hole caved in on me. A sinner. Cannot atone for a fellow sinner. He or she has their own sin burden to bear. They cannot help you be one to no one. Because Jesus was blameless and separate from sinners it does not mean that he cannot sympathize and, more importantly, that he can't save you from where you are. Let me tell you something. Temptation, temptation is not sin in itself. It is a solicitation to sin. And the devil desires that you bite the forbidden fruit and die. But the temptation only becomes sin when you bite. Now, it's sin on the devil's part. We're talking about you and your responses. Jesus, we are told in the Scripture, was tempted in every way that we are. Don't say he doesn't know what I'm going through. Don't say that. The devil baited Jesus with all the possible propensities of being human. Think about it. You can read about it in Matthew 4, Luke 4. What about self-gratification of the flesh? We read in Matthew 4, after 40 days of fasting, Satan came to him and said, You know, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Gratify your flesh. You know you're hungry, right? Come on, you got to admit it, you're hungry. How about all that God power you have? I know you can make stones into bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Oh, next, he took Jesus to a very high point of the temple and advocated that he throw himself down because, after all, God had promised in his word to assign angels as Jesus' protectors. Aren't you the great Son of God? Is God the Father going to let anything happen to his son? No. He's actually appointed angels to take charge of you so that you won't even hurt your foot on a rock as you walk. It was an appeal to his pride. Oh, look at who you are. God has this great army of angels to protect you. And Jesus answered, of course. It also says in Scripture, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Yeah, if I'm walking along and I trip and I'm going down and I'm going to fall and bust a leg or something, that's one thing. It's another thing to go to the edge of the temple pinnacle and deliberately jump off and dare God to protect. appeal to his pride. Lastly, the devil displayed all the kingdoms of wealth, all riches of the world, all the power of the world and promised to Jesus that if if you would just bow down and worship me I'll give you all these kingdoms. It says he, he showed him Appeal to the lust of the eyes. What you see can be yours. Let me show it for you. Vista vision, panavision. Here it is. Don't you like that? Self gratification. Pride, lust of the eyes every category for every sin was dangled in front of Jesus by the devil but he didn't bite he didn't bite all of his, his resistance was the truth of God's word which he used to counter the devil's twisted thinking This temptation, brethren, was so intense on Jesus, so draining emotionally, so draining spiritually, that Matthew tells us that after the devil left him, angels came and attended to him. You have never been tempted like this. I have never been tempted like this. We are little fish compared to Jesus. The devil came after this last Adam with less subtlety and more viciousness than he did with the first Adam. And he stood the task. And then lastly, we note at verse or number 3 in our outline, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that justice as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. Verse 20 and 21. Brethren, I think it's fair to say that sinners are saved not only by the cross work of Christ, but by His righteous life as well. The righteousness that saves is perfect obedience. Perfect obedience, not one sin. Not one. The first Adam saw to it that none of his posterity would ever be able to save him or herself, let alone another. We all die in Adam because we are all sinners in Adam, verse 12. So I ask the question, how did Jesus escape the taint of Adam's sin? Was he not fully human? Ooh, that's a sticky one. Some heretics of the past have actually taught this. They said, no, he he was not fully human. But if Jesus were not fully human, then he could never be our representative before God because we are human beings. Just think about this again about the union. Try a non-union member slipping into the UAW negotiations and trying to speak on behalf of the union. (laughs) Why, they'd be tossed out on their ear. Let's see your union card. Why well, don't have a union card? How'd you get in here? I just walked through the door. Get out of here. You have to be one to be one of the representatives. Listen to what the scripture says in Hebrews 2 verse 17 about Jesus. For this reason, He had to be made like His brothers in every way in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to god and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people how's he going to atone for human beings if he's not a human being remember that being a sinner being a sinner is not a prerequisite to being human Adam was fully a human being before he sinned in the Garden of Eden. Fully human. So we need to be careful not to predicate to Jesus something that was only known in Adam, the sinner, after the fall. Before the fall, Adam was not a sinner, but he was fully human. Okay, I ask the question again. Then how did Jesus escape inheriting Adam's sinful nature? Well, Joseph was told of Mary's pregnancy these words. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. In other words, no male human being was responsible for her pregnancy. The child was of God's miraculous power by the Holy Spirit. Neither Adam nor any of his descendants, including Joseph, had anything to do with it. So obviously the sin nature is Adam's legacy, not Eve's. Because he sinned wide-eyed and willingly, whereas she was deceived. So we get our sinful nature from Adam. But Jesus was not conceived that way. Well, Joseph believed this to be true and to make sure that no one would ever be able to accuse Jesus of being his child, a sinner by birth, or anybody else's child. Matthew tells us he, Joseph, had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, meaning Savior. That's how he escaped Adam's sinful nature. Brethren, let me just say here, every doctrine about Christ is essential to your salvation, if you give up the virgin birth you have no savior. You don't. And those liberal theologians of the 1920's in our own country who did this, denied the virgin birth and denied the deity of Christ and so on were cutting away, cutting away, killing every hope for humanity to have a savior. If Joseph or some other man was Jesus' father, then he was a sinner, just like you are a sinner. He was dead in Adam, just like you die in Adam. But Paul talks about the gift, it's in our text, the gift of righteousness. Hallelujah. The gift of righteousness reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, verse 17. Because this one man, this exception to the fallen human race, was not Adam's child, but God's child. And the perfect Savior is not only the man who died for believers on a cross, but he was the sinless man who from infancy to childhood always kept every one of God's commands without exception and without failure, not even once. You cannot buy this. It's not for sale. It's God's gift to all who will repent and believe. What a Savior. (laughs) That's the kind of Savior we need. Somebody outside of us, distinct from us, reached down in that pit, Pull us out and breathe into us the breath of eternal life. Our Father, we pray your blessing upon your word this morning. Stir our hearts with the truth of it. How we thank you and praise you. That Jesus, while being made in the fashion of human being, and in all those aspects, was very much a man, a human being, yet was separate from sinners. Not one who disobeyed though He is the Adam that should have been. He's the way man should have lived in reference to your commands. And so by His obedience, His righteousness is accounted to us through faith. We're not righteous, but He's righteous. And if we believe in Him, His righteousness is laid to our account. How oh, we need that. I don't want someone like me as a sinner. I want someone separate from me to reach down and do for me what I cannot do for myself. For anyone here this morning that is outside of Jesus Christ and they don't know the last Adam, they only know the first Adam because they're related to him through the birthing process. May they understand they must come to Christ and be born anew, born from above. And this last Adam will come by his Holy Spirit and do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Grant them that faith and repentance to run to Christ. Lord, grant that, please. May today be the beginning of new life for some one or two people or however many the Spirit of God moves upon in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.